Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Brumley, and with me today is my chum, Carl Olson, editor of Catholic World Report, and we're going to do a Catholic World Report update for folks. Carl, welcome. Hi, Mark. Great to be with you, as always. Yeah, you're in your new uh, office there. New office, which is still, as you can tell, over my corner, or, you know, over the uh, my shoulder there, is still somewhat in a state of disarray. Um, actually, the space is divided into kind of two-thirds my office and one-third what we call the storage area, which, of <laughs> course, is just complete chaos. Well, it's very generous of you to uh, to allow a third of your <laughs> office space to be used. For I was, I was, yeah, I was told that that's how it was going to be, and I thought, I, you know, I think it was a, I think it was a reasonable request. <laughs> well, folks who are listening to this on the podcast and now watching it on YouTube or other video outlets should know that it's a fairly sizable office space with large number of books. So. I'm sure you you've read them all at least once. You're probably going through now your second or third time. Yeah, actually, I'm reading now all of them backwards. Just <laughs> to, you know, so <laughs> no, that's the, question, that's the question that people ask, Mark. They almost a lot of people have you read all those books? And I, right. it's an interesting question. We could do a whole show just about how people perceive the you know the collecting of books and and libraries. But anyway, yeah, no, that that we should do that sometime because I get the same thing because yeah, people well, yours are watching. Yours is yeah. I got a backdrop of books too. Yeah, People yours, yours is very beautiful, though. Yours is very nicely organized. Well, you're you'll get you've got so many and you got so much space. I have very little space, so uh, I have to organize what I what I can here. Uh, but that's not why we're here to talk about our libraries, although it's, that's a fascinating topic to be sure. What's happening with Catholic World Report these days? Well, we've, of course, we've we have uh, had regular pieces now for f- several weeks on the the Ukraine situation. Um, we've run a number of our pieces exclusively for CWR. We've also run a number of news briefs from CNA, and of course, that continues to be uh, a, a focus. And of course, our our prayers go out to folks in Ukraine and just for peace and justice to be to be uh, you know there because it's such a horrible situation so that kind of keeps things in context especially as we approach you know holy week so we've had a number of pieces on on that of course it's a special interest to me because uh i've been our family have has been in a ukrainian catholic parish since the late 90s and um so it's something that's on our minds and our prayers a lot um and then i just recently you know posted an editorial about the um not that it's all about me, but I, this is the 25th anniversary. This past week, actually, is the tw- 25th anniversary of my wife and I entering the Catholic Church. All right, yeah, you you mentioned uh, the late 90s, and so I was just say, yeah. well, didn't you do something in the mid to late 90s? Yeah, so we entered the church on March 29th, 1997, Easter Vigil at St. Paul Catholic Church in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, I remember that evening, you know, very quite vividly. Um, it was it was really wonderful, and um, we had a we had gone through a very exceptional RCA RCIA program, which we're very thankful for. Had a wonderful priest, Father Tim Akaitis. I mean, you know, you hear and Mark, you know these stories 
better than I do because you've read a lot of them. I've read a lot of them of people who have gone through a lot of things in becoming Catholic, whether from Protestantism or especially when you think of those who've entered the church from Islam or, you know, atheism, a lot of struggles, a lot of difficulties, a lot of conflict. We certainly had some bumps and some challenges and some tensions, but really, uh, you know, thanks be to God, it was very, for us, it was, I'm not going to say easy, but it was smooth in the sense of there was not a lot of discord. Um, no I, death warrant issues. No, yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, it, you read some of these amazing, especially converts from, from Islam. It's just really uh, amazing to read these stories. But, uh, you know, 25 years, it's gone many ways, of course, very quickly. Um, so I wrote a little editorial about that. But just kind of touching on some observations that I've had over the years. Um, you know, nothing really profound or, or, or groundbreaking, but reflecting in part on just the um, things that have changed, especially... I think social communication, social media, how it's affected, right. how it's affected, how we perceive the church, perceive so many things in the church. Um, but that I, really the, the point is the challenges continue to be the same because I think the challenges for the church and for us as Catholics um, continue to be kind of foundationally very much the same about faith, about the incarnation, about the triune God, about how we understand God, how we understand ourselves as people, what it means to be human, which of course has become really a significant issue. Um, the, the anthropological crisis, I think, that we see throughout the Western world has been huge. So I, I touch on some of those things uh, in that piece. Yeah, on 25 years a Catholic. So people can go to catholicworldreport.com and read your wonderful ed editorial. I, I was reading, well, you'd mentioned to me that you were writing it and I read it. Uh, you know, I don't read your stuff just because we're going to talk about it on a podcast. I, I read it because I'm interested in it. Uh, and so then I read it and I thought back uh, how uh, I taught you, a, I taught a course with you in it many, many years ago. Yeah. In fact, that was, you know, I look back and it's just amazing. I mean, really amazing the providential nature of so many things in our lives so I was really eager to go through the RSIA program a year earlier than we did. And mm -hmm. my wife, Heather, at that point, although she was, you know, quote unquote, on board with becoming Catholic, both of us being uh, graduates of Evangelical Bible College, she had a lot of questions. She wanted to kind of work through some things first before we went into an RCIA setting, which, of course, we didn't really know a lot about. We were right. completely oblivious to how these things worked. And... It so happens that by waiting an extra year, I was actually, to make a long story short, able to then begin the Master's in Theological Studies program in the fall of 1997, which you, of course, were a professor in, a, a instructor in, your course on the write, writings and thoughts of John Paul II. Excellent course. Um, and John Paul II certainly had a, had a big impact on me and becoming Catholic, and then just met just a, a number of incredible people, uh, both instructors and classmates. Um, and so if I, th I think if we'd gone through a year earlier, that might, for various reasons, might not have happened. And I, you know, that program, those three years in that program, the friendships, the connection I made with you, I, you know, I ended up uh, writing my first book, Will Catholics Be Left Behind, under under your editorial guidance. And um, Father Mitch Pacwa, who was an instructor, <laughs> I remember <laughs> – so at one point, you know, our, our first child came along, an adoption, the 23-hour pregnancy, as I call it. Mm 
That's right. <laughs> where we got a phone call, and 23 hours later, we had a pregnant old baby girl. <laughs> um, that slowed me down. I didn't write. I, I was right in the middle of writing the manuscript. And I don't know if I told you the story. I think I did years ago. I hadn't written for about three months. And Father Pacwa had been very um, eager for me to write this book on dispensationalism, the rapture theology. Will Catholics be left behind? Now he And he knew about Felicity and he knew about the you know, this adoption, but he calls me up one day and says, what's going on with that book? You know? <laughs> and I said, Oh, you know, father, it's just, I got so much stuff. He said, finish the book, finish the book. You can do it. You're young. <laughs> so you don't know I how did. ironic that is since he's working on a book for us now. <laughs> I keep saying, finish the book, you know, but father, you know, father, speaking of that, you know, father Mitch, again, that was um, to be able to study under somebody like that, where he's teaching us new Testament, old Testament, Reading, of course, he when he taught those courses, he would read directly from the Hebrew or from the Greek, um, being a being a master of both those biblical languages, and of course, speaking about ten or eleven modern languages. I say um, that he knew the biblical languages is notable, but you know, it's a drop in the bucket when it comes to his yeah, linguist. Just just remarkable in that regard. Stickle abilities, yeah. So, uh, you know, one, yeah, you you. Also had Douglas Bushman, and who, who I had as a as a teacher uh, many years before that. Because I'm an old man, uh, you're still fairly young. And um, and Bushman, we you know continue to work with Bushman, and we publish Doug Bushman's articles in Catholic World Report. Yeah, actually, I didn't have Douglas. One of my the only regret I have about the whole program is I didn't have Douglas. Okay, you didn't have him. Yeah, he but, was in charge of the program. But, you but I got to know him, and over the years, he and I have had many wonderful conversations and he has kind of catechized me in in that regard. And um, of course had folks like the late Mark Lowry, who was just a brilliant, brilliant professor who I just, uh, I had to think four or five courses with him. uh, Really fantastic. And the thing about that program, and I think this kind of ties into the, my, my editorial is that it was really kind of like each weekend we went once a month was really like a retreat. You know, we would have, not just mass, but we would have a morning prayer together, evening prayer together. Um, there really was a focus on worship, on prayer, on spirituality. It was not just about intellectual formation, although that was right. quite, quite rigorous. And I think that um, had a tremendous and lasting effect on me, for which I'm, I'm very thankful. Well, uh, congratulations on 25 years. Uh, there's a lot we could say. I do want to <laughs> pull a quote out from your article, your editorial, and this is a quote from, it's you quoting Tracy Rowland, the theologian and Ratzinger Prize recipient, uh, where she describes bourgeois Christianity. She says, bourgeois Christianity, however, does not fight on sacramental ground. It does not fight at all. It simply goes in search of Christian-friendly elements of the zeitgeist with which it might identify and market itself. It views sin therapeutically and bureaucratically. It is either a mental health problem or a misuse of decision-making authority to be countered by better policies and bureaucratic circumscriptions on the exercise of prudential judgment. Within bourgeois Christianity, there is no cosmic battle, no demons, no angels. Sacraments, if they appear at all, do so as mere symbols and social milestone markers. 
proponents of a bourgeois Christianity have been, as de Lubac well understood, quote, overcome by a desire for conciliation that left them defeated before they'd begun, unquote. The ecclesiology that undergirds a bourgeois form of Christianity is inevitably a vision of the church as a, quote, people's republic, unquote. Accommodation to the zeitgeist is more important than sanctity. Why did you quote that? That's a powerful <laughs> quote. Why did you use that? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, Tracy, before that book came out, it's a book that she wrote. Uh, I interviewed her about that. The, the link is in the um, the editorial, right. a book about Kant and Nietzsche and German German theology, modern German theology. Um, Tracy, who I've uh, formed a little bit of a friendship with, incredibly brilliant woman, sent me a couple chapters of that book before it was published, including that final chapter. And when I read that, and I read that particular quote, I just thought it was, first of all, it's beautifully constructed, but right. she really gets to the the heart of something that has fascinated me for a long time. Now, she, I should back up and quickly say, you know, some people might react to the term bourgeois in a certain way. She defines that term throughout the book. And really, for her, bourgeois, it's not about an economic class or middle class. It's about a mentality of approaching the world where it's really about comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want life to just be nice and easy and everything taken care of and everything gets flattened out. And so the transcendent disappears. And so it's no longer about having communion with, with God of entering into life giving relationship with Christ of being empowered by the Holy spirit. It's really about having the comforts of life, uh, focusing on kind of the the, the powers of this the, of this world and the things of this world, and she goes into detail in the rest of the book about it, which is a little, kind of an academic book, but really beautifully written because she's a great writer. Um, but I think that you know the emphasis there at the end on sanctity really struck me. That this seems to be a real well, it's you know it's always a problem. Anybody who knows church history knows this is continually a problem when you read. Paul's letters to say the Christians in Corinth, it's a huge problem. Um, it's a problem for all of us. I mean, Lent is a time where we really hopefully sit down and contemplate and recognize our struggle with um, not achieving sanctity through the grace of God by refusing to die to our to the, the sins in our life, to confessing those sins, all these things, right? So, um her, what she's saying, I think, in essence, is that a, there's a certain form of Christianity that, that capitulates and compromises on so many fronts. And then it, what happens then is that moral core disappears, is that the ascent to belief in, say, the Trinity or the sacraments or the reality of spiritual battle disappears. And so then you're, laugh, you're left with what we, I think, fairly would call the liberal German Protestantism of, you know, the 1800s into the 1900s something that affected many aspects of German Catholic belief, which we see today, right? We see right. a number of German leaders, Cardinal Marx and others, positing or, or pointing towards the need to just relax on all these different things, whether it be sexual morality or, say, the ordination of women. And all this, I think, is based in a very flawed anthropology, and also a lack of faith in God as he has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. I think all these things are deeply interconnected. And I try to touch on that right. out of a brief space. Well, I think also uh, there is a misreading of the Second Vatican Council. So 
in, in some ways, in, in certain circles in the church and certain outlooks and approaches to things, before the council in the 1960s, there was a mentality, almost a siege mentality, where you had the church versus modernity. And, and there's some validity to that, of course. Uh, but some, and that certainly we don't want to reduce the reaction of Catholic leadership and theologians and priests and so on to simply opposition to what's going on in the modern world, because that would be unfair. But certainly there was much more of that mindset. And so some people interpret the Second Vatican Council, especially especially Gaudium et Spes, where it emphasizes a certain a certain kind of openness to the world as doing exactly what is described here as bourgeois Christianity, namely uh, search, you know, go in search of Christian friendly elements in the zeitgeist, uh, which might, which it might identify and market itself by which it might mark with which it might identify itself and market itself. And, and so some of the things that you're describing things going on in the German church, but going on elsewhere where there's a certain sense, well, here are some good things or things that seem to uh, work well with the gospel message. We'll emphasize those and not ever get into any kind of conflict with the modern world, lest we be seen as pre-Vatican II. Yeah, for example, you know, I mentioned Cardinal Marx and his recent comments, as they've been reported in various English outlets, he talks about, he apparently seems to be talking about same-sex couples. And he says something there about, you know, how do we tell these these people who are committed to each other that they, you know, they can't have children like that? I think I'm being fair to what he said, accurate to what he indicated there. And um, to me, in, in, in reading that, I'm thinking, where, what about the reality of suffering, the fact of suffering? Not that as Christians, we should look for suffering. That's right. not the point. Rather, that suffering in this life is inevitable. It comes in a lot of different forms. People in a lot of different uh situations experience it differently some very dramatically externally some internally but we don't get to have everything that we want and further we actually are going to experience loss and difficulty and, and pain and so you know he, he seems to be saying well if somebody really wants this if this is really what they want who are we to stand in their way right. and thinking well this you know certain days are certain things that i want that are uh, either morally neutral, you know, hey, I'd love to be able to go out and buy, you know, a bunch more, you know, books or something, right? Uh, <laughs> you need a few. Now my wife might not say that's morally neutral, but or things that are bad. Yeah, right. gosh, you know, I'm just, I'm like, I'm tired of this marriage, or I'm tired of this or that. I just want to go and actualize myself, follow my passions, follow my heart. You know, all these things. Well, the you know the the, the cross, <laughs> the demand to take up the cross. This is not just some kind of metaphor used by Christ. Um, it is it is a an exhortation to follow Him through the suffering in this world, and that's that's the only path. I mean, that is the only path. Um, right. And I what I see coming out of Germany and other parts of the of the church is a uh, kind of a capitulation of bourgeois Christianity, where people are saying, "No, you can have whatever you want." It's really just about kind of 
uh, you know, following following your heart and and just kind of having a kind of a hazy, nebulous faith in God. Whereas Scripture, and I, this is fresh in my mind because I've been teaching the Gospel of Matthew at our weekly Bible study at our parish. When Christ talks about violence in Matthew, oh, I forget, is it 18, 17, somewhere there, uh, maybe earlier, the violence he's speaking about is actually the holy work of God, where God, with our cooperation, goes in and eviscerates sin but it's it's like surgery it's it's really painful yet it's absolutely necessary if we're going to be spiritually healthy right well yes and uh of course in in matthew 16 after peter's great confession of faith uh, and jesus talks about how the son of man is going to go to jerusalem suffer and die and so on and peter says no no lord that's not going to happen jesus rebukes him and then he jesus proceeds to talk about how we as his followers have to die to ourselves and take up our crosses and follow him. And sometimes people can say, well, you know, I, I don't want to talk that way because someone else is suffering. I don't want to imply that uh, that person should just, you know, walk it off or keep a stiff <laughs> upper lip, you know, but for the grace of God go I. And so therefore I don't want to have that attitude. Well, it's not, well, first of all, there's plenty of suffering to go around. And even some of us who have the best of lives in this world still encounter suffering. We all have things we want. Sometimes we feel that flow deep from our inner desires and fulfillment and all of that, that are just contrary to what's really, really good for us and what's really, really good for other people. And since Jesus wants what's really, really good for us, uh, there's going to be a time. There are going to be times when those things come in conflict. What we desire, what seems good to us, and which and things that can have actually have uh, facets of the good. I I know that in yeah. Cardinal Marx's discussion, he says we're going to say these relationships have no good in them whatsoever. No, no one's saying that there's nothing good at all. But the question is, at its core, is the relationship fundamentally consistent? with what's good for the human person? Is it fundamentally true to who we are? And certainly in the Catholic context, is it fund fundamentally true to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is, is clearly not. So uh, that's gonna bring about suffering, just just like yeah. you know some of the things you, examples you gave and some of the desires that we have and the inclinations we have and the wishes we have for our lives and and so, so on, oftentimes, those things we have to die to because they're in conflict with what's really tr and truly good for us. Or they're in conflict, or, or to put it differently, you know, in the Christian context, what God is calling us to. Yeah, this is something, a topic, by the way, speaking of Catholic World Report, that we had a recent piece here by um, Archbishop Charles Chaput. Right. Um, and it was a, an address he gave a few days ago to seminarians in Milwaukee. And it's, it's kind of a reflection on the title of the book he wrote recently, uh, Things Worth Dying For. Um, and he, he talks about some of these same things. And it's interesting. I, I thought that he, that the archbishop uh, kind of gave us a little window into his own experience because he retired 
uh, as Archbishop of, of Philadelphia right before everything started to shut down because of COVID in March of 2020. Right. And he talked about how he had these kind of, he had these plans and this kind of agenda and he's going to do certain things and then everything shut down. And it became for him a time of, of really reflection on a lot of his own mortality. Having read his book, um, which I highly recommend, it's a really, there's some really profound reflections there on mortality and the reality of death things worth dying for yeah things worth dying for and it's really great Uh, i read it about three months ago but it's something i thought i thought about a few times because it it has great kind of lenten easter um soundings to it um so that's a great i think a great piece there and of course he's he's uh, specifically first and foremost they're challenging seminarians to really, you know, think about some of these things, uh, to have this eternal perspective on their lives as they approach being ordained, you know, as priests. But of course, his message is applicable to to all of us, whether uh, seminarians, priests, lay people. Because right. um, you know, we and this is something I kind of harp on a lot, but I think it's it's just a big thing for me, and that is we're mortal and death is real and it's coming. Um, and we don't need to, we don't need to obsess about that, but I don't think that's really the problem in our culture. I think our <laughs> culture does everything in the world to avoid this fact. Um, and so as we approach Holy week, you know, this is really the time to, I think, kind of look directly at the fact that our lives will end. What have our lives have been about? What is the goal? What is the focus? Where are we at with, in our Christian walk as disciples of Christ. Um, so that's kind of been a, a theme of some, a couple of pieces, uh, you know, at Catholic world report. And then I would also point out, and I know this is probably a kind of of interest to you, Mark, cause you're, a, I think kind of a movie buff. We have this uh, new piece by Deacon Stephen Gradonis about the 50th anniversary of the famous Godfather, the first Godfather movie, which I'm came glad, out. Glad you brought it up. Cause I yeah, March of <laughs> March of 1972, which, Boys, I I watched it a long time ago, and you know what? It's really funny. I'm I'm so bad at recalling movies. Like I I leave movies with kind of a general sense, and I oftentimes <laughs> think about them in terms of this was a movie about mobsters. I think right. And I have friends. <laughs> I have friends who can sit there and just quote. They can watch a movie once, and they can sit there and quote, you know, whole sections of the movie. I'm not the, I'm not like that, but um, very interesting because because Deacon Great Honest talks in there about. The Catholic themes, of course, they're deep Catholic themes in the book, right? Uh, and then the the movie. Some some uh, of the ways, one particular way yeah. in which the right. the book differs from the movie is in the ending, yeah. and he makes the case that you can. There's a plausible case for the book's ending being superior, but it, in the end, uh, uh, Stephen Gray Donis is the author. He 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 sides with the filmmaker Coppola way he ended the film uh i just want to encourage people to read it because it's a very fine uh review essay it's very very literate and very articulate both about the movie specifically about the godfather and related themes and related films so yeah and it's you know i'm not a um i'm not a huge you know movie guy but um that you know i know enough to know that obviously that film is one of those kind of landmark works of cinema uh, and really kind of, I think was the beginning of ushering in a, a new uh, kind of uh, 
I say wave of movies. You've got Martin Scorsese who came along and started doing movies like the you know Taxi Driver and um, you know there was this kind of this real gritty 1970s approach to film. Um, you know, so without getting into the necessarily the morality of it, obviously there's controversy over some of these you know movies because some of them are are pretty dark. Yeah. But I think there was, um, you know, my take is that at least there was kind of a a grappling with human nature in a way that when you watch maybe a lot of the more big blockbuster movies today, I'm not sure it's quite the same. Um, I think there's some of the some of the philosophical maybe angst or, or whatever you want to call it in those 1970s films um, has disappeared as, as a little bit more of a, um, I don't want to call it a fantasy element because I don't want to be negative about the term fantasy, so to speak. But, you know, when you look at the big superhero movies and stuff, which can be enjoyable, I enjoy some of them, but sometimes you go away thinking, yeah, you know, that was visually interesting, but, what was it all about? Right. Well, you watch a two and a half or three hour movie and you can boil the plot down into about a half hour of plot. And with some, you know, that half hour plot is stretched over a two and a half or three hour movie via the connecting points of special effects, action sequence, action sequence. So <laughs> just not to say that the films are, are bad per se, they can be fun. And even the, the plot can be an interesting plot. It's just, you know, it, it's yeah. somewhat thin for the length of the movie or the, the opposite effect is where they try to do too much in a, in a movie that they've already uh, piled a, a lot of effects on. And so then the stories suffer because there's not really uh, sufficient time for the story qua story to unfold right. uh, instead of the story punctuated by, uh, you know, big special effects moments and things of that sort. Anyway, but I want to say something about the Godfather uh, story. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Gray Donis does a great job of talking about this film. Uh, first of all, it's a great, it's a great piece of filmmaking. But the angle of uh, the main character, Michael Corleone, or one of the main characters, Vito, the, the dad, Marlon Brando, and uh, Michael Corleone. Um, uh, Al Pacino character um, the that this is a story about family but it's about a it's about a sort of compartmentalization hmm. of family life and the work life of course the work here is another kind of family which is the mob and uh, just the how these these how this story conveys that separation and uh, the relationship of, of Michael Corleone to his wife, the romantic interest character who then becomes his wife, um, carrying over this division. I thought it was a fascinating point. And then his talking about the church, the role of the church. You know, old, there were some older movies, uh, Great Honest Mentions, On the Waterfront and Angels with Dirty Faces, where you have priests involved with um, you know, confronting crime. In the Godfather, the there obviously the, the very name, the Godfather, <laughs> indicates a Catholic milieu for the film, and there are elements, especially that wonderful scene of uh, where uh, Michael Corleone in, in the old rite of baptism is 
is uh, assuming the role of a godfather for his, uh, I think it's his nephew. Uh, and he is, you know, speaking in the name of the child, taking on the baptismal obligations while, you know, juxtaposed with that is a scene of, of, of mob killings that he's ordered. So he's rejecting Satan while he's actually doing Satan's work through his mobster guys out killing people. So you've got that happening. And then he's in that very act becoming the Godfather, not in the Christian sense, but in the, you know, in the crime family sense of the Godfather. But so there's, there's that element of a Catholic milieu, but as great honest notes, we don't really see churchmen uh, having anything more than kind of a ceremonial role. Yeah and not really uh, involved with the confronting of the evil, you know, in the story. So I, I it's a, it's a fascinating review article. I encourage people to read it. Yeah. That's, that's it. That part of it's really fascinating to me because you can say, well, you look at these violent, you know, evil actions and these men and how horrible that is, but really isn't that kind of that veneer, where we have, okay, we give lip service, we're here at mass, et cetera. And then we go do our thing, do our own thing right. uh, in a, in a very undramatic non-criminal way. Isn't that the way that a lot of people, you know, live their lives? Um, right. So and I, to go back to the Karl Marx, the Karl Marx, the uh, Cardinal Marx conversation. Now this is obviously Cardinal Marx would condemn the kind of violence that that we see in mm -hmm. you know the Godfather and in a mob and organized crime and so on, but you know you you feel like saying, well, look at all of the good that Vito Corleone did as the Godfather because he, he you know he helped out a number of Italian families who were not getting justice, you know, and and uh, he was a voice for justice for these immigrants who weren't always able to participate fully in the society to which uh, they've immigrated, you know, uh, surely you're not going to condemn him uh, given the good things uh, that he did as the Godfather and so on. Well, we would, we would say, yeah, but the, you know, there, there's a problem of bad means to a good end. And yes, well, while that, that we don't want to say that no good was done. Uh, we at the same time want to say, that's not the way to do good. And when it comes to, you know, the business of same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage and so on, obviously we, we are concerned. We don't want people to be suffering. That's why we support the pastoral outreach of the church to help people uh, learn to grow in chastity and to have good, healthy relationships and so on. We're not denying that same-sex people and in, in their relationships can have good friendships and can care for one another and love one another in an authentic sense, but that's different altogether from what happens in marriage and in a, in a marital relationship. So we can't let that those elements of good in that relationship somehow underwrite uh, the evil or the wrong in the relationship, just as in uh, the Godfather, we can't let the family orientation of Vito Corleone uh, underwrite uh, you know, small F family uh, uh, ambiance of Vito Carleone, you know, which he says, you know, a man doesn't spend time with his family isn't a real man, you know. Well, that's certainly commendable, but that doesn't justify, 
you know, the way in which he takes care of his family and he's taking care of people in the in the Italian community at the time. So anyway, that's just a, a side. But well, I, mind. but I do think that whole theme, even if people don't consciously think about it, is one of the reason the movie, I think, kind of resonates. It captures kind of a um, this inner contradiction. And how people, you know, live live with that, and then how it eventually, of course, leads to immense suffering, tragedy, death, you know, those kind right. of things. Yeah. And, and again, just so we don't get accused of comparing yeah. people in same sex relationships to right. mobsters, right? You know, the point no, is, yeah. you can have something that has mixed elements of good and bad, and calling attention to the good doesn't underwrite or justify the bad. That's the point. Yeah, there's a moral. There's the parallel is with the moral logic, right? And what it says about relation, you know, in, in the context, especially of, of human relationships. That's yeah, exactly. Um, you know, sometimes, Mar, I was going to say, sometimes the CWR. I'm really surprised by what readers, what kind of pieces really resonate with people. Yeah. And I wanted to mention this, uh, you know, before we we ha we have to go, and that is. Um, Joseph Pierce, who just came out with a great new book uh, for Ignatius Press on the uh, – I have it. I have it here too. Oh, we can both show it up. Product placement. Put it up there. Show it. Yeah. Faith of the Faith Fathers of the Father. History. See, A History of True England. There you go. Um, by Joseph Pierce. Joseph, of course, has written just – gosh, how many books has he written now? It's got to be uh, 25. Seven million. Seven million. Seven million. <laughs> so one of my favorite books by Joseph Pierce, one of his first, is Literary Converts. Uh, that book had a real – I had become Catholic already, but I really like that book. And of course, many great books, Solzhenitsyn, Shakespeare, several books on Shakespeare. But Joseph, we had an excerpt from Joseph's book on the Jesuit martyrs during the time of the Tudors. Now, um, you know, that got some readership, and I think people are interested in that. But then I had sent Joseph a link, I believe it was to a BBC article about, um, or something having to do with the BBC documentary and how King Henry the Eighth was being kind of being canceled. He's gone through, you know, King Henry the Eighth has kind of gone through these ups and downs in terms of his in terms of his reputation over time in England. Uh, of course, incredibly controversial figure and kind of essential at the heart of the English Reformation. So Joseph, uh, a few days ago, sent me this piece on canceling Henry the Eighth, and I thought it was a really interesting take, a little bit provocative. So we posted it and. It's gone nuts. I mean, it's gone viral. Just thousands and thousands of views and reads and people reacting. And why uh, is that, you think? What's that? Why is why that reaction? I still, I'm not sure. Um, I think, first of all, just the juxtaposition of canceling Henry VIII. That's kind of curious, right? You got this modern term right. about canceling, which, of course, is kind of a hot topic in itself in various ways. I think Henry VIII, I think there's a lot of people who are interested in, you know, England is one of those countries where the, the, the history of that country fascinates a really wide range of people, myself included, although I'm, I, I certainly am not a uh, historian by any measure. Um, and then I think he's just, he's kind of, now, Joseph actually in that piece says that he, he doesn't, he wishes that the BBC wouldn't wouldn't quote unquote cancel Henry the eighth. Cause basically the, I guess 
my understanding is the BBC is saying we're not going to really talk about Henry VIII because he's just he was such a despicable you know person. I see. And Joseph's articles, no, you, you don't avoid it. You need to actually address and ask questions. You know, what is it about Henry VIII? What is so problematic about him? What, you know, why do we have this reaction to him? What did he actually do? Part of it may be him having canceled a number a lot of, of wives. People. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people. No, he was, yeah. But yeah. yes, but you're right. Having a conversation about it is important. And it, unfortunately, you know, in our culture, we find figures who are either wicked or uh, mixed, good, mixtures of good and bad. Most of us are mixtures of good and bad. And when somebody's uh, bad traits become, uh, you know, a kind of a cause celeb in certain circles to be condemned, the temptation to cancel them becomes overwhelming. But let's have a conversation about it instead of just yeah. trying to make somebody disappear from history. Yeah, we had a lot of comments, and like one commenter basically said, "Well, this is really, you know, really rich of the author to say this because the Catholic Church has, you know, been canceling <laughs> people throughout history and stuff." And, um, you know, I think I think it's a good a good conversation to have as long as it's a a reasonable one based in some actual factual understanding of of history. I, absolutely, there's been a lot of things that have happened in church history. A lot of Catholics have done very, you know, bad thing. Oh, Henry VIII was a Catholic. Well, he was, yeah, for a time. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, I think one thing we're going we're gonna to agree on here is that uh, all Catholics are sinners. Um, you know, that's, as Chesterton once said, the main reason, the first, the main reason he became Catholic was to uh, get rid of his sins. Yeah, I still, to, to answer your question, I, I don't have a full grasp of why it it resonated so much. I mean, I thought it'd be a piece that some people would find interesting, and but it's uh, it's actually our most read piece of this past week. Um, so it's just uh, it is very interesting how those how those things can go. Um, I think it's actually part of it's one of the the fun aspects of this work as editor of a Catholic World Report to see what resonates. Um, with with people and and where people what people are thinking about certain topics whether historical or current events or, or whatever it is um so i just thought well, I'd, I'd point that out well i appreciate that carl we want to encourage people to go to catholicworldreport.com they can read the uh article that you're referring to there and they can also read the godfather's two endings lighting a candle and the wrong side of the door by Deacon Stephen Gray Donis. And then plus you're on 25 years a Catholic. We talked about one facet of that, but there's so much more for readers to get out of your article there. So I want to encourage them to do that. And uh, what's coming up in Catholic World Report that hasn't been published yet, but that readers should keep an eye out for, Carl? Well, we're going to have a number of pieces relating to Holy Week. We're going to have a couple pieces on Palm Sunday and some aspects of Palm Sunday. And then um, as we go into Holy Week, we'll have some more pieces of, uh, about that. So that's obviously going to be kind of a, a focus, um, in the coming week, along with, you know, certainly the news briefs and world news and so forth that we have every day at Catholic World Report. Excellent. Well, and also we've added a new, uh, column by Larry Chap, theologian Larry Chap, and, uh, Larry's very popular online and podcasting and broadcasting and so on so we want people to check that out it's called 
Well, will you tell people what the column's called? <laughs> well, when Larry and I were discussing it, I just threw out, I was actually told down a lark. I said, we just call it Chaps Shtick. <laughs> and he said, oh, I love it. And then he he uh, he mentioned it to his wife. My wife loves it. And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I so, thought it was a little I thought it was a little glib, <laughs> uh, but we've gone with it. People actually seem overall to to like it and really kind of captures, I mean, the idea of a, a shtick is, you know, it has different connotations. But it's right. just a piece. I mean, so these are right. pieces by Dr. Larry Chap, where he addresses, I think, mostly kind of controversial topics. And he's um, he doesn't shy away from controversy. Very great thinker, really fascinating guy with a lot of a lot to offer. We're really pleased that he's writing a regular column for us. Bit provocative, uh, almost always fun or funny. Yeah. So I encourage people to read Larry Chap's column at Catholic World Report. And of course, we have our regular regulars. George Weigel and James Kalb and, and folks like that, as well as the occasional editorial from you. Right? Occasional, the quarterly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very good. Well, Carl, well, thank you uh, for, for the conversation. It's, it's been great. And we encourage our viewers and listeners to go to catholicworldreport.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, thanks for listening.